Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ideas Matter by William Collins. The big ideas of our times discussed by the brightest thinkers. It's 10 o'clock exactly, and the editors of William Collins, publishers of fine writing for over 200 years, have gathered for the weekly podcast meeting. Uh, This week, it's Arabella, I believe, with Catherine Mannix. Hello, I'm Catherine Mannix. The idea that I want to promote is that the process of normal dying is actually quite a lot less terrible than most people appear to believe. And so what I hope and wonder is whether by being less afraid we can die better and can we therefore day by day live better too. So Catherine Mannix for decades was a palliative care consultant working mostly in the northeast. So not only being a brilliant and very distinguished doctor, she decided to take early retirement because she wishes to break the taboos that we still suffer from around death. Arabella, this book's probably one on the list that's had one of the most extraordinary sort of reader reactions of all of all of the books we've published in the last few years. It all came from that sort of initial interview when Catherine was on the radio. I wonder what, what about her message you think has sort of resonated so so deeply immediately with people, you know, before even the book was published. The main distinguishing feature I would I'd say about Catherine is is her humanity. One can tell from her voice she's someone one immediately wants to confide in. The power of her writing just captivates. I defy anyone to get through her book without shedding five or six bucket <laughs> loads of tears. It's definitely one of those books that certainly I've, you know, given to several people who sort of who need it something i had no one really thinks about this like great t- taboo around death and you know the vast majority of people think of death in the way that it's portrayed in the news and in drama which by its very fact is normally violent death does not have to be like that the growing sleepiness that uh, huge numbers of people undergo towards the end of their life is something she explains beautifully in chapter after chapter after chapter and the power of the work that is done in hospices but it's also a great work of literature that can be enjoyed without any practical application because of this sense of making you live better And so, dear listener, let's end this uh, preamble and uh, get into the chat. As Catherine Mannix discusses why death is one of modern society's greatest taboos. 
that there are two things. I think that what people think dying is going to be like is much more terrifying than it actually is usually like. And that we're anxious about making each other sad or putting each other into a situation of feeling awkward by having conversations to the extent that we even don't use the words. You know that you hear people now not talking about death and dying, talking about passing and passing away. So I think we fear awkwardness. These sort of euphemistic psychological swerves, Mm. which I think is a term you've used, do you think that's changing in the 21st century? I think not yet. I think that change is going to have to come because we're living longer, we're dying of different things. And one of the things that we're dying of because we live longer is dementia. Mm. And you can't leave it until the point of death to ask somebody with dementia what their preferences are. You've got to front load those conversations in order to be able to have them while the person's well enough to, to think about it and tell you. So I think the demographic changes are going to be one of the reasons that the conversation starts to change. Why do you think this is a modern thing? I mean, or has it been going on throughout history? I guess nobody's ever been tremendously keen on the idea of dying. I think that's probably existed through the whole of history. And none of us is keen on the idea of being bereaved. But what's really interesting is when you look at the Ars Moriandi, written in the Middle Ages Mm. when the Black Death was, was sweeping Europe, it was drawn for illiterate people. And there are devils and angels around the deathbeds. And the devils are the same difficulties that you see in 20th and 21st century deaths. They are preoccupation with day-to-day business. They are preoccupation with who I am and what I'm worth. They are fear of despair, which was a mortal sin for a Catholic population across Europe in those days. And now it's a fear of despair in science, almost. And then there are the angels around the bed, encouraging people to be in the moment. You know, fascinatingly modern and actually terribly, terribly old concepts. So I think the thing that has really changed is that we've become unfamiliar with deathbeds. So my grandmother is a really good illustration of this. She was born in 1900, so she was always the the age of the century. And over the first half of the 20th century, she lived an 18th, 19th century awareness of dying. So she looked after her parents who died of old age-related illnesses when they were in their 40s and 50s. She had siblings who died in their childhood. She had a child who died of a disease that we routinely immunise against now and she was widowed in her early 30s because her husband had appendicitis. So that kind of familiarity of husband has died, a child has died, siblings have died, parents have died, by her mid-30s she was completely familiar with the sequence of events that happen as somebody dies. And then in 1948, when she was 48, the NHS was created... And so instead of dying at her expected life expectancy, which for women in 1900 was 50, she died just shy of her 98th birthday because the second half of her life was lived in the modern era of antibiotics and anaesthetics and she had a gallbladder removed. She had a couple of episodes of infections where she was rescued with antibiotics. She had a stroke and was rehabilitated in her in her 80s. So medicine changed 
her experience changed. And in the sweep of a single generation, British people in particular, people in the developed world, lost touch with normal dying. And you find the same awkwardness in some of the medical staff? Yeah, I think what we find is that the ability to sit down and describe normal dying, which is a great consolation to patients, relies on you having seen it enough times to be able to speak with integrity from your experience or to be able to say, well, people who are more experienced than I am tell me that this is what you can expect to happen. What did you feel when you were first in that situation, presumably as a young doctor? Well, it didn't occur to me to start off with that this was a process that could be described. So over my first five years... After qualification, I I worked in medicine in hospitals. And because I was interested in cancer and wove my jobs around that, I saw a lot of people die. I'd probably seen several hundred people at the very ends of their lives before I first went into palliative care. But, of course, I was the most junior doctor in all of those teams. And I was the person who was at the bedside who was supposed to be stopping the person from dying. And that's what most of medicine does, isn't it? It's to try and stop people from dying. So when I moved into working in a hospice and my boss there took me with him when he went to talk to a lady who was very afraid of what might happen at the moment of death, I was completely unprepared for what was about to happen. It was a complete game changer for me and it was the birth of this idea, I think. So... The lady was such an interesting woman. She was a very elderly French woman and she'd been a member of the French resistance during the Second World War and she'd married a British airman who'd come to support her resistance cell. And he died, I don't know, maybe a decade before of a heart Mm -hmm. attack. And she now was dying of bowel cancer, relatively gently, but she was very frightened that if her pain suddenly got worse as she was dying, that she would commit that sin we talked about of despair because she was a French Catholic and that if that happened she'd be separated for eternity from her beloved husband because she wasn't brave because she despaired and despair wouldn't let her go into heaven so I thought that my boss was taking me to do a talk about not worrying about pain because these are the options and this is what we can do. But actually, he very wisely realised that what this lady had was an existential distress. It wasn't medical not in at that all. way. Yeah. And he said to her, have you ever seen somebody die? And she, she'd seen her husband die after his heart attack. And he was very brave and he said all the prayers with the priest so she knew he'd be in heaven. And that's why she was frightened of not getting there. Mm. And she'd seen somebody die of gunshot wounds outside her farmhouse in the war. But that was it. It's a very limited experience of watching people die. So he said to her, well, shall I explain to you then what dying is like, what's likely to happen? And I was absolutely appalled. Mm. How how can you possibly describe to somebody what dying is going to be like? Is he he mad? Do you think it would just increase her distress? Well, I, I didn't even know how he could say what it was going to be like from this vantage point of before it had happened. And that was the real learning thing for me. So she said she would welcome that information. And he then went on to describe a process that as he was describing it to her, I started to realise, my goodness, yes, this is right, this is a process. 
He's describing what I have seen hundreds of times. But I've always been so close to it, so busy trying to stop it, that I've never stood back and seen the overall pattern. And because of that, I'd never really thought about the similarities between one death and another. I'd thought about different diagnoses, different ages, different drugs. But what I hadn't seen was there's this overarching pattern of normal human dying that actually is a process that is as recognisable in its stages as the stages of labour and birth are to a midwife. Fascinating. So, yeah, it was it was absolutely fascinating and it was a complete game changer for me because she was so comforted by that information that she completely relaxed. And I was left well, I was left actually quite tearful at the I'm end not of surprised. it. Surprised. But also thinking, My goodness, we can do that for people. We can describe this process. We can give people more information and they end up feeling better, less afraid more comforted and in fact every time I've had that conversation with somebody subsequently I always start by saying listen if this gets a bit too much for you you just say and I'll stop nobody has ever stopped me and I don't know how many times I've had the conversation it's at least hundreds well, of course might be thousands but at the end of it there's always this kind of thoughtful pause and then the person says wow do you think you could tell my family that? Yes, well, I was about to ask you, because yeah. <laughs> it's not just the patient. Absolutely, and in fact, at the very end of people's lives, most people are far more worried about what it's going to be like for their family than they are about what it's going to be like for themselves. So actually having a whole family understanding this process of becoming more tired, needing more sleep the sorts of breathing changes that we see as death is coming closer, the sorts of noises that people make because they're deeply unconscious and don't realise that they're making those noises, so that families don't misconstrue it as groaning or terror or trying to... Or pain. Yes, or of course, suffering of any sort. So helping people to expect that that's the process is really important. But the thing that you say about pain is really important as well because, of course, the symptoms of dying are actually simply of being more tired, of lapsing into unconsciousness, of breathing getting faster and slower and deeper and shallower and eventually stopping. But at the same time as that, of course, you will have the illness that's killing you yeah. causing whatever symptoms it is causing. So if it's a, a lung disease or a heart disease, it might be breathlessness. If it's cancer, it might be abdominal swelling or it might be pain of some sort. So... If you carry on that comparison between the parallel processes of labour and delivery and terminal illness and dying, that antenatal period when your midwife describes what giving birth is going to be like and the instructions she will be giving you during the process is also the period where they make sure that you're in your best health and the baby's in its best health so that on delivery day things can run as smoothly as possible. There's a parallel to that yeah. in addressing the symptoms of the illness that's causing somebody to be terminally ill. And these days it might be several illnesses. So that the symptoms themselves are not rearing their heads and causing discomfort and suffering at the very end of life. So then the only thing that you're left to deal with is the actual process of dying. The emotions itself. around mm. it. Yeah. So if somebody has a good death, I mean, what, what does that look like? So, I mean your wonderful book, you've chosen to use stories to underline some of these ideas that you've, that we're talking about. But 
someone has got themselves to a state where they're accepting of what is happening and talking honestly with their family, but there's they want Christmas or there's mm-hmm. somebody in their family getting married. Um, have you had experiences of that sort of fear and problems yeah. in the terminally ill? So things that be, that are precious in our lives anyway obviously become much more precious if it might be the last times, the last birthday, the last Christmas that people want to survive for particular important family events. And sometimes that means actually moving the family event. <laughs> um, so in palliative care, most hospices start Christmas around about October. And there may be a series of Christmases between October and December. And some patients actually then defy the odds and get Christmas twice. But that, that's probably <laughs> better than missing it altogether. <laughs> so actually being able to talk to people about if time is very limited, what are, what are the important things for you? And Atul Gawande has this lovely question, what matters most now? That's a great question. Great question. Great question. And people can tell you. They can tell you that it's time together or it's having Christmas or it's being able to help to choose the name of the grandchild that I might never get to meet, but at least I can put the name in the hat or something like that. Yeah, fantastic. So, yes, it's, it's very poignant working with people when they're trying to do very special things. And very often they'll be trying to create particular memories, particularly when you're working with young people who are dying, who either are young parents and they're trying to leave memory materials and support for their children in bereavement, or teenagers and young adults who had their whole lives before them that are being deprived of that and are trying to get some life experiences and and you know how teenagers and young people they want to be independent they want to take risks that absolutely turn their parents hair (laughs) white and just because you've got a terminal illness doesn't make you not want to be a teenager exactly like that yes and sometimes in fact in palliative care we're mediating a little bit to let them take the risks and keep their parents a little bit calm And, of course, one of the big changes over the second half of the 20th century is that because we have better sanitation and better immunisations, childhood deaths became very, very unusual. So you hear people now saying it's against the run of nature. Well, of course, what's against the run of nature is everything that we can do to reverse nature. And young people dying is therefore rare and very poignant when it happens. And shocking. They are very practical. Mm. The young people themselves are often incredibly practical. They're very worried about their parents. They're very worried about their siblings. And they're often quite interested in what their legacy will be. So one of the stories in the book is a story about a young man who was one of the last patients I looked after before I retired to do this work. And he's the only person in the book who, as a patient, got to read his own story. Mm -hmm. And he was in his early 20s and dying from a a genetic muscular disease and one of the things that was really sad for him was that he felt you know he he didn't have a a girlfriend he didn't have children he wasn't going to leave a legacy other than sadness for his family was his assessment of the situation but actually he was an incredibly kind and thoughtful and creative young man he had lots and lots of friends on the internet because in internet gaming he could be able-bodied because he still had finger movements to be able to use his controls of his game and what he did with me was to very beautifully craft 
an emergency health care plan so that he could avoid going into hospital if that was possible and he could limit the interventions that would be applied to him in hospital if he wasn't well enough to say so for himself at the time. And as a consequence of that, he helped me to launch the online platform for our region that was the advanced care planning platform. He was he was the poster boy for Amazing. it. And telly people came and interviewed him and he was in the local newspapers. His mum was very, very generous with time and coffee in, in their mm-hmm. house. And it was so successful because he was articulate and he was compelling and he was living it and he was living it well from a wheelchair, highly dependent in body, highly independent in his mind and in in his intellect. And he has changed what has happened to people in the future. So there's a legacy. Wonderful. And some. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This, this business about you know, the sophistication of modern medicine, and you know, it is keeping us alive for so very much longer than in the past. And the importance of people to express their wishes about being resuscitated. Do you have views about that? And I mean, should medicine intervene if it can at all in all cases? Or should people be allowed to, to die if there is a crisis that's happened to them? Isn't it, isn't it a conundrum? It's, it's so interesting. When cardiopulmonary resuscitation was first described, it was described as a treatment for a very specific electrical abnormality of the heart diagnosed in a hospital where the heart was being monitored, where an electric current across the heart would change it back to a normal rhythm straight away. And it was great. And it saved lives. It's been a fantastic intervention. hooray. But then you think, well, should we try that with people who are 
not in the coronary care unit should we try that with you know that guy who collapses in the street maybe that's what's happened to him and again because the public generally get our information from newspapers and tv dramas soaps doctors are always lamenting the vast success rate of cardiopulmonary resuscitation on medical soaps you know almost everybody is resuscitated and is well after resuscitation Um, and actually if if you have a cardiac arrest in hospital the chances of you getting home reasonably well are one person in five and if you have a cardiac arrest outside hospital if your heart stops beating or it does that kind of chaotic electrical activity that stops the heart from pumping Mm -hmm. and somebody does CPR and gets you into hospital the chances of you getting out of hospital well are only 10% good lord so the difficulty is that you come out of hospital not as you were that your brain having been starved of oxygen for a period of time means that you're now not the well person that you were you may be cognitively impaired you may be physically impaired you may no longer be able to live independently So if you have an illness in which your heart is a problem and you have the likelihood that this could be a difficulty for you, then it's probably as well to be able to say to your family, look, if this happens, I do or I don't want to have resuscitation happen. The problem is then other people get called in to help and they weren't privy to the conversations with the family. They're not always terribly good at listening to the family saying what you said you wanted. So now we have to have a certificate Mm. that says this person has discussed it or their doctor has advised them that it wouldn't help or whatever. So you now have a do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation order and it's getting progressively more and more complicated. So I think one of the ideas we need to think about as a society is what living well means, Mm. what dying well means and whether or not, particularly as we get older and perhaps have lots of different things wrong with us, resuscitation is a useful thing or whether that's a thing that stops natural dying from happening when it could have been a helpful time for it. Yeah. How do you think your work is going? So you've retired as a palliative care consultant to write this wonderful book. And do you think the message is getting through? I mean, what, what's the response been? The response to the book has been absolutely overwhelming. I just really didn't expect what has happened And I think the most heartwarming part of that has been the letters I've had from sick people saying, I know that I'm dying. I was really frightened about what it was going to be like. And I'm less frightened now. Thank you. One one lady wrote to me to say she bought the book for her young adult daughters. And once they'd all had a chance to read it, she was going to sit them down so that they could have the planning conversations that she wanted to put in place. That's... Remarkable. People's courage is absolutely Absolutely. astonishing, isn't it? The other thing that's been really, really gratifying is the number of people who've written to say, I've read your description of the sequence of events towards the end of life, and in particular the breathing changes and and the noises that happen through the breathing. And I've realised that my dear person who died, who I thought had died in agony was actually following this process, will have been deeply unconscious at the point that I thought that they were suffering and that I don't have to carry on being 
traumatised by what it was that I saw and heard. And if only somebody had told us at the time. Could have saved that person oh, many years of Many of years of, of, of bereaved agony. What is the breathing? So at the very end of life, as, as we become closer and closer to death, we are less and less awake and more and more asleep. Just in the same way as you are if you've got really bad flu, mm -hmm. really, where you need sleep to recharge yeah. your batteries. But as that process progresses, some of the sleep is actually deeper than sleep. People dip into unconsciousness. And we only know that if we try to wake them up for medicine time or a mm -hmm. phone call or mm -hmm. whatever. So eventually the person is just completely unconscious. Mm -hmm. And as that process is taking over, we need to think about maybe the drugs that they've been having for physical symptoms from their illness and giving those a different way so that if they're having deeper and lighter periods of loss of consciousness in the lighter periods they're not being disturbed by physical symptoms yeah so as the person's becoming unconscious what the only bit of the brain that's left once we're deeply unconscious is the bit that drives our breathing and breathing's not a thing that we usually think about we manage it all of the time once you're unconscious though breathing just becomes a reflex cycle mm. and the reflex cycle is alternating between periods of very slow breathing and periods of faster breathing and also between periods of very deep breathing and very shallow breathing and because we're deeply unconscious we might hold the muscles in our voice box a little bit closed without being aware of it so you breathe out through closed vocal cords and that would make a, a note a kind of mm, so that's the rattle, noise that a rattle? well no that would that would just be a sighing noise mm. but if you didn't know better you would think the person was, was groaning yes. or was trying to speak so it's really important that we narrate this to families yeah, and say so you can hear that noise that your mum is making and and this is the reason for it it tells us she's deeply unconscious it isn't speech it isn't groaning it's it's unconsciousness and perhaps the most important thing is that we've evolved to protect our airway. It's a really important part yeah. of the survival mechanism for all animals. And so if anything touches the back of our throat, we will cough, we will swallow, we will gag. If somebody's allowing saliva or bits of gubbins from, their, you know, from yeah. their lungs to just lie at the back of their throat and they're not attempting to clear it, that tells us they're deeply, deeply unconscious, very, very relaxed. And that liquid lying there is lying close to where the breath is coming in and out so the breath bubbles through it and it makes a clicking noise it makes mm. a rattling noise and people talk about the death rattle mm. as though it's a terrible thing yes. actually it tells me that this person is so deeply unconscious that they've got no sensation at all of the back of their throat they are incapable of feeling the most sensitive part of their body so they won't be feeling breathlessness no, or pain nothing. or anything else you know, unpleasant. But at the very, very end of somebody's life, their breathing is very gentle. It's very shallow. There can be long pauses. And there will be an out-breath that doesn't sound particularly different from any of the other out-breaths that just isn't followed by another, another in-breath. Peaceful. Very peaceful. Sometimes so peaceful that you can go into a room and find a family sitting around a person who's died a few minutes ago and they haven't realised yet that their breathing has stopped. Really, really gentle. Mm. What do you think all of your immense thinking and experience of caring for dying people has taught you about how to live well? That's a really great question. 
I think that one of the things that is really interesting watching people who know that the end of their life is approaching is that they spend far more time in this present moment than they do worrying about all of those other things, worrying about their possessions, worrying about their legacy. So like those devils and angels around the deathbed in the the Middle Ages, actually people become very centred and focused on now. And that the present moment can be a, a, a safe place of great comfort. And it's made me start to think about dying safely. How do you create a safe space in which the process of dying can take place, where we can keep an eye on the person so that if symptoms start to become a problem, there's a backup plan to get rid of the symptoms. And where does that need to be? It doesn't need to be in a hospital. It doesn't need to be in a hospice. It could be at your own home. It could be at a relative's home. The attendants don't need to be medically qualified. They just need to be wise and experienced. So I think one of the things that we perhaps need to think about is demedicalizing the idea of dying and the management of dying. But in terms of what's the impact then of seeing lots and lots of people die, I think it probably just makes those of us who work in palliative care aware that the whole of our future is unpredictable. Mm. The only moment that you've got is now. And if you want to reach the end of your life with that kind of balance sheet between regret and satisfaction, more in the satisfaction range, then what can we be doing today that means that we've achieved more of those things that are important to us? We hear the same things happening around a deathbed all of the time. We hear people wanting to express gratitude to the people who've been important to them. We hear people wanting to make apologies for, you know... For their mistakes. Yeah. yeah. And also to be sure, well, usually to be sure that people who might have offended them know that they've been forgiven. Sometimes it's to make sure that people who might have offended them are definitely not forgiven. But that's, that's, that's less common. But the most important thing over and over again is that message to people that they are loved. People wanting to say, I love you. And I was struck by that particularly when those planes hit the Twin Towers... Mm. And all of those messages were left on answer phones because it was the working day and they phoned home and home there wasn't anybody there. They weren't telling people they weren't telling people off, they weren't giving messages that were unnecessary. They were simply saying, I love you, I'm not gonna get out of this and I want you to know that I love you. That's the most important thing to remember. And as I was hearing this on the news, I was thinking, This is what I hear day in, day out at work in a hospice and in a hospital palliative care team. And it tells us about the human condition that in the end, that is what is most important to us. Well, palliative care consultancy, helping people tell their loved ones that they love them. What a great mission in life. Catherine, thank you so very much. Thank you. That was Catherine Mannix in conversation with her editor, Arabella Pike. Our programme today was brought to you by William Collins, an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers, and was produced by Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. People who helped put this episode together are Anushka Tate, Tara El-Azawi and Jack Chalmers. Share your thoughts on this podcast by emailing ideasmatter at harpercollins.co.uk or on social at wmcollinsbooks. You can buy with the end in mind as a hardback audiobook or ebook. 
where Catherine Mannix dives even deeper into the ideas discussed this week. Thank you for listening, and keep an eye out for the first chapter from the audiobook of With the End in Mind, which will appear in this feed this Friday. And we'll meet you back here next week when we will be discussing whether single-sex schools can solve the gender pay gap with the author Clarissa Farr. I'm just remembering um, on one of my very early days at the school, standing on the, the sort of marble concourse, which is really in the heart of the school, and one girl came past with a huge grin on her face. And she said, Miss Farr, I just love Latin. I, Dr Barron, absolutely great. I saw there how the girls could be absolutely touched with fire by teachers who were incredibly enthusiastic about their subject and what a thrilling experience learning is. To hear that episode first, don't forget to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify and on Acast. Thank you for listening and goodbye.